You rule over all the circumstances in our lives, for you ordain them from the smallest to the greatest. And you rule over the nations, you lift them up and you destroy them at your will. And we are a part of your body, the most important group of people to be a believer in Jesus Christ and to be united with you by faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask this morning that you would give us confidence and peace and hope and faith. And according to the scripture from Ephesians chapter 1 that we've read and prayed through, that in us today, through your word as we look at the gospel of Luke, that you would produce all of these things in us as your people. And we pray this for your sake, Lord Jesus. Amen. So you can turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. It's also printed for you in your worship folder, so you can follow along there as well. You know, a very common question that many people have asked, and you see it repeated in the Bible, you see it repeated throughout history. People even today ask this question, and that is a very simple question, what must I do to be saved? And as Christians, we're very familiar with the Apostle Paul's answer to the Philippian jailer when it says in Acts 16.30, and after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And of course, we're also familiar with the famous words in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, where it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. And this is true. So if you are asking that question this morning, what you must do to be saved, it should be very clear. You confess your sins and you put your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God and our Savior who died on the cross for our sins and was raised for our justification. And then continue to learn about the Lord Jesus from his word and grow in his grace. Now, when our Lord Jesus himself was walking upon the earth, healing people and preaching, it was also a question that many people would ask him very specifically. And often those people who asked Jesus what I must do to be saved in some form were often just assuming that they were already saved. Because they were good, religious, moral people. And so they would ask Jesus, who they would adore as a great teacher, a great healer, maybe he was the Messiah, because they wanted more assurance that they were saved, or sometimes they wanted Jesus to know that they knew that they were saved. That somehow they wanted to let Jesus know that they were already saved one of his own. But Jesus would most often challenge their assumptions, which are assumptions that are very common in our society as well today, that somehow they aren't really as good as they think they are. They think they're good enough for God, but they're not. And he would challenge assumptions similarly that somehow people could do enough good at some point in their life that it would tip the scales and somehow that God would now be incentivized to grant them salvation because they're good people. 
Well, turn your Bibles, as I already mentioned, to Luke 10, 25, and we're going to learn from Jesus about his, from his interaction with a lawyer about these important questions of eternal life. It's the famous parable of the Good Samaritan and is the context of our discussion today, and it's in the context of a discussion about eternal life, actually, and illustrates the kind of person who actually possesses eternal life and rightly relates to God and His law. And so we're going to learn from this passage that Jesus' disciples actually love their neighbors not just in thought and in principle. In other words, not just with their words, yes, I love my neighbor, but they actually do it with their deeds and prove it in their actions. And Luke is retelling this story to us so that we learn how to gain eternal life and how to live out this life then once we've gained it. And so in verses 25 to 29, we'll learn that gaining eternal life can be very easily explained even from the law of God in the Old Covenant. And then in verses 30 to 37, we will learn that living out eternal life uh, here is illustrated for us by our Lord Jesus. And we'll read the passage as we go along. But the parable of the Good Samaritan is unique to Luke's gospel. In other words, it's the only place in the Bible you'll find this uh, story told. We don't, the setting is with a certain lawyer, but we don't know for sure the particular timing of this event when he had this conversation or where exactly he was when he told the story. But it's, it's often assumed while he was in Judea or even Jerusalem. And it's highly likely that Jesus was asked the kind of question the lawyer was asking many times in his ministry and would give similar answers to people on this topic of eternal life. I mean, eternal life is a hot topic of the day. Uh, what is the essential of the law? That was a hot topic of his day. And this little subsection in Luke that starts here and goes through 11, chapter 11, verse 13, is really um, intended as a sampling from Luke of the kind of teachings that Jesus would give. And so they fit together really nicely in a small unit on discipleship. And so here um, today, um, it's about looking to your neighbor. And then in 1038 through 42, it's about looking to Jesus and the famous story about Mary and Martha. And then, of course, Jesus teaching on prayer, looking to God. And so these are very common um, passages we relate to discipleship and form a little unit within Luke's gospel. Well, let's look at this challenge. So, the challenge between the lawyer and the Jesus shows us that gaining eternal life can really be explained just by looking at the law. And so, the outline of our passage is pretty simple. There's this question for question in verses 25-26, and then in 27-28, there's an answer for an answer between the lawyer and Jesus. And then finally, in verse 29, in verse 29, then we finally get to the point where there's a very revealing question that's going to lead us to a very revealing answer. And so the storyline begins very simply in verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, this is Jesus, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So this lawyer or scribe was probably also a part of the Pharisee party, and he would be an expert in the law of Moses. And perhaps he was even involved in certifying other teachers, making sure that they understood the law properly. But regardless, he decides to give Jesus a test about the law and how one can secure one salvation. Now, we don't know whether or not, I mean, he's obviously testing Jesus. Is he coming in a very hostile manner? We don't know. 
Um, is he simply curious at what Jesus would say? We don't know. Was he very suspicious of Jesus and the kinds of things he was going around teaching? We don't know. Um, discussions of these topics, though, as I already mentioned, what is eternal life? How do you get it? What is the law? How do we summarize the law? They're hot topics of the day. And so he calls Jesus teacher, and he asks him what he must do to inherit eternal life. Now, realize that this lawyer most likely already assumes he has eternal life. Or certainly he's quite close. And it's the same in our context. It was a common view of religious people, of good people, especially of leaders and teachers of the law. And he, his question probably has more to do with then how do I secure all these blessings of this inheritance of the kingdom? But notice also the faulty emphasis and assumption in his question regarding human ability. What can I do to gain eternal life with God? This will come up again. So Jesus' reply is really to deflect the question back to the lawyer and ask him to answer the question and to answer it from the law. It's an offer really on Jesus' part to listen to the experts before he offers his own opinion. Now, they both understand what's really going on here. And what's really going on here is a rabbinical method of debate and discussion. And this is Jesus' way of accepting the opening gambit, if you will, like a chess game with this lawyer. And Jesus will make his moves soon enough. And so then we see an answer for an answer that's given here. And the lawyer answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So the lawyer answers his own question from the law itself, although he doesn't really comment uh, on it. He just simply quotes Deuteronomy 6.5, and he quotes Leviticus 19.18. And his second move, if you will, on this little discussion debate with Jesus is a very conservative one. No one's going to disagree with what he said. Little risk is involved. And it was a commonly accepted answer at the time that, well, yeah, you can summarize the law, love God and love your neighbor. And there were many attempts at this time to summarize the law on who could be the best and most succinct at the time. Um, very common, to love God is going to require love from all of our being. We have to love God with everything, with, with our heart, that refers to our emotions. We need to love Him completely. We need to love Him with our soul. This is referring to our spiritual awareness and our spiritual drive. We need to love Him with all of our mind. That means we need to be intellectual, and we need to love Him with all of our strength. It emphasizes the extent of our love, that every single strength in our body needs to be directed toward God. And to love for our neighbor has been defined uh, by the Jews at this point in history by loving their fellow Jewish people, those who are a part of the community of faith, and, uh, and maybe some aliens that have come in as well and joined themselves to the group. But not necessarily at this time does it include all people. There were limits, of course, uh, to this, they would say. But Jesus is soon going to apply it for them without limits. Now, in continuing with the rabbinical style of discussion, Jesus tells the lawyer, you got it right. I mean, it's from Scripture. I mean, who's going to disagree with quoting the law? 
It's orthodox. There's nothing unorthodox in the answer. And it's really a good summary of the law. I mean, this vertical relationship with God, this horizontal relationship with man, these are inseparable things. In fact, in the New Testament, this is taught as well. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and following, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son for us to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't believe that this man actually understands what he's quoting. Or that he's even fully doing it, because it's impossible for any human being to obey what he just quoted. The nuance of eternal significance is that if you're going to quote the law, and that that's the path you're going to take to please God, well, good luck, because you have to do all of it all the time. And you can't make one single mistake. Not one. And everybody at the time even knew this, that everybody was a failure. Because that's why we have the sacrificial system. I mean, what do you think that points to? It points to the fact that no human being can keep God's requirements to love God with all of their being, all of the time, and to love their neighbor as themselves all of the time. Impossible. So Jesus' second move here challenges the lawyer to, come on now, show me what you really got. Play a bold game. Stop giving me pat answers. And so Jesus simply quotes Leviticus 18.5 and says that, fine, do the law and live. So then the revealing question leads to a revealing answer in verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Ah, very faulty, stupid question to ask. So the lawyer isn't satisfied with Jesus because he's not playing the game that he wants to play, and the discussion isn't going where he wants it to go, and so as the text says, he's seeking to justify himself, meaning that he wants to make his view of the whole matter actually known. I mean, he's got it all figured out. Smart guy. So he asks a question which, which seeks to qualify the requirements of the law in some way which is what you have to do. I mean, if you think that you can do something to gain God's favor and get eternal life, you're going to have to qualify the law in some fashion because you're not going to be able to keep it in its absolute nature. And so maybe he's seeking to justify his past or some current practices with people, but also isn't it interesting that he seems to assume that he's got the first part wrapped up that he loves God with all of his being all of the time because he doesn't bring that up. He brings up the question about people, about the humanity part, that somehow he's got that figured out. So who is my neighbor? And so the lawyer boldly makes a very foolish move because he asks how one can spot a neighbor. 
And so he limits the category and now exposes a weakness of his own, and Jesus is going to exploit it and attack him in a minute. So he's already limited the requirements by assuming that he's already loving God with his whole being and, uh, and uses his own standards. Because, you know, it's really easy if you use your own standards. Guess what? You meet them almost all the time. Ah, amazing how that works. So, however, the lawyer's mind, in the lawyer's mind, he's made a really good move, and he thinks he's going to finally put Jesus to the test here. And he asks so that he can promote his own theological theories but, uh, and uh, see if Jesus can actually win. But, of course, we know that this is the hinge in which Jesus is now going to spring the Good Samaritan parable trap and walk away with a decisive victory in his debate. So this lawyer is a great example of the universal condition of all of humanity. He's a wonderful example of that. You see, people tend to think that they're good enough, and they like to find ways to assure themselves that they're good enough. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe it's you. And people uh, have to limit the demands of God's loss and so their responsibility to him in order to find themselves justified. So they have to sort of tone it down. Have you notice that? Maybe it's you. You talk a lot and qualify a lot what's in the word so you don't actually have to do what's there. So it should be obvious that those who seek out minimums from God and want to define all that by according to their own standards and their own minds, not using really scripture to define those things, are truly far from entering the kingdom of heaven and truly far from eternal life. So, but gaining eternal life, as you can see, it can very easily be explained from the law. Jesus just did it. You see, because the law of God is intended for us to see our sinfulness. It's not intended as something that we can play with to get away with sinfulness. The law is intended for us to see that we are hopeless people. It's not there to somehow relieve us of a burden. And as a result, the law should lead us to seek out God's provision for sin and the righteousness that can be attained in Jesus Christ because we don't have any of it ourselves. In Galatians chapter 3.24, a very important verse, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. That's a wonderful passage. You might want to write that one down. Galatians 3.24, the law has become our tutor or our teacher to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. That's the purpose of the law. So Jesus Christ, you know, is the full sacrifice for our sin, to pay our debt. And he would give to us a full-lived righteousness because we can't live out of righteousness, so he earned it on our behalf and is willing to give it to you. In Romans chapter 10, verse 4, it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. Jesus did this. Only Jesus did this, and only Jesus can do this. Do you need this? Do you need Jesus' righteousness? Do you need to, maybe as a Christian, praise him all the more for giving you a righteousness that he earned in which you stand? And then, of course, once one truly has eternal life from God through faith in Christ, you can live out uh, these kinds of injunctions that we read about 
in our passage today even, but yet we realize that the only way that's really possible is because in the, in the transformation that takes place in becoming a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is in, put into us. He takes residence in our life, and so as Romans chapter 8, which we'll look at later, uh, he's the one that causes us to live in a way that actually pleases God. And we know forever that it's not us in and of ourselves that actually please God. It's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of Jesus Christ is working through us and causing us to please God. Unless we get too smug in the, our own religious game, and we think that we might even be smarter than this lawyer, Jesus is going to open up the definition of a neighbor to its widest dimension, and he's going to stun us all in a moment by showing us the fullness of it of what it means to really love your neighbor, not just in thought or in principle, but uh, actually by actions. And so living out eternal life in the next section, once we truly have it, um, is what's being illustrated. So notice that Jesus is not really answering the question that's asked about the definition of a neighbor here. Rather, he's illustrating what it means to be a loving neighbor. He's not answering the first question the lawyer asks about defining a neighbor, but what it means to be a neighbor. And so we have this parable then of the Good Samaritan, and so it's a very simple outline. We get the setup of this great need in verse 30. And we have two very, uh, initially, very hopeful responses to this great human need in verses 31 to 32, but neither of them actually work out in our story. So there, there's a third um, response that comes to this great human need, and it actually solves the problem. And then finally, there's a lesson that Jesus gives in verses 36 and 37. And so the need is set up after the question that the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So in this story that Jesus tells, there's a certain Jewish man who's violently attacked on his journey from Jerusalem going down to Jericho. It's a 17-mile journey that's very steep uh, from 2,600 feet above sea level to 800 below. Curves wildly through rocky terrain, cavernous areas. It's rugged territory. It's notorious for thievery. And it's not just at this time in the time that Jesus lived, but historically, this is a very dangerous area. And so in the story, the man gets severely beaten, perhaps because he puts up a struggle to no avail. He gets stripped of all his possessions. Even his garments are taken. He's left unconscious, dead, or soon to be dead. And so the implied question of the story is, here is a man in great need. Who will love this man? Here is a person in great need. Who will love this man? And so initially, we get two very hopeful responses, but they turn out to be horrible in verses 31 and 32. And so the story continues, now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And so first we have this priest comes by traveling alone. Presumably, he finished his duties in Jerusalem and was on the way back home. Um, he's not only a religious man, but he is a part of the priestly class, which would have been very wealthy 
upper class part of society as well. And surely this man is going to help. I mean, he's a pious individual. He has many resources, and the need is obvious. And he's even free of his religious duties, so he doesn't really have anything to fear regarding keeping himself ceremonially clean. But instead, he passes by the beaten man intentionally, uh, crossing as far away as possible from him. Why doesn't he help? We're not told. But perhaps he fears the robbers are going to come back for him. Perhaps he fears some type of a ritual defilement or, you know, it's hard to tell who this guy really is. I mean, he could be a Gentile, and they sort of deserve this thing anyway. So Jesus points out, though, that this man has no real excuse. The robbers are gone. His duties in Jerusalem are done, and he has opportunity, and he has an obligation to to help. And Jesus' point is that this priest didn't help his neighbor because he lacked a true love for his neighbor, a true concern for him. And that's what the story's about. I mean, surely if you were to interview this fictional priest and you asked him, do you love your neighbor? He would say, oh, yes, I love my neighbor. It's exactly the point of the story, but he doesn't. And so then there's a Levite. This is a lesser temple official. It's a second great hope for this dying man. Now, Levites were not part of the Aaronic priesthood. They were assistants to the priests, and they helped in the liturgy, and they policed the temple area. But he's also a religious man. But he would have fewer excuses on the purity side of things and why he couldn't help this person. But maybe he took a closer look, but he does the same thing. He goes on the other side of the road, and maybe he feared the robbers, or maybe... In the storyline, he watched what the priest did. And so he simply followed suit. Now, Jesus' point is that two representatives of religious Judaism lacked the mercy required by the law. The law requires mercy. And notice also that the purity issues, even if they were present, that they didn't want to be ceremonially defiled, Jesus doesn't consider those legitimate exemptions. You can't use that as an excuse. And so, so far, the lawyer is probably loving this story because it fits with the things he's probably seen at times, from some of those priests and some of those Levites. They've really irked him because he's not one of them. He's a layman, remember. He's not of the priestly class. And so the lawyer's expecting, well, this is great. You got a priest, you got a Levite, so who's the next person in the story? And you know the third guy is going to solve the problem. And that's going to be somebody like me. And so he's really excited that, no, Jesus is going to pass the test but he's going to hear that the third man is one of those hated Samaritans. The Samaritans are the ones who actually beat and robbed the Jews while they were passing through their land. And some of the Samaritans actually at this time in history had just defiled the Jewish temple by throwing human bones in the courtyard. Not a lot of genuine love for people here. And this is going to mean that Jesus is going to put the religious lawyer in the same category as the religious leaders. So we come across the third and the correct response, starting in verse 33, but a Samaritan. But a Samaritan 
as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan feels compassion beyond the risks of being robbed or being defiled. I mean, he would have had his own issues in that category anyway with the Samaritan religious system. Or beyond prejudice. I mean, he would assume that if this guy's beaten up on the side of the road, it's a Jewish guy. But Jesus goes on to emphasize the extent of the Samaritan's compassion by notice how much time is given to what the Samaritan does versus what the priest does and the Levite does. It's like every single action of this man is focused on. The Samaritan bandaged the man. He probably didn't carry a first aid kit, so he's probably using his own clothes. He used his own supply of wine and oil to disinfect and soothe the man's wounds. He put the man on his own donkey while he walked alongside as if he were a servant. He took him to an inn and stayed the night, caring for the man's needs, and he paid for his lodging and food and even gave extra to cover and ensure that proper care would be given to the man, and he gives two denarii, one-twelfth of one denarii, was the going rate at the time for a night at the inn. 24 times that he gave. So he would even say he would pay more upon his return if necessary and if everything was done satisfactorily. So he makes sure that this innkeeper does exactly what he's told. Maybe he's a businessman. Sounds like one. Well, we're to understand that this is the most unusual level of compassion for this time and this culture. The Samaritan did all he could do to love his neighbor to the fullest possible extent, and he sacrificed his safety, ritual purity, his money, his social dignity, and a whole lot of time. This Samaritan went above and beyond the average average, uh, average compassionate person would even do. And Jesus intends by telling this story not just to level that lawyer, but to level us. And to make us realize that none of us would do what that Samaritan would do. Certainly not all the time. You know, many people misapply this parable. And they assume assume that they fit in closely enough with the good Samaritan. Oh, that's me in the story. I would do what that good Samaritan did. How did Jesus know I would be there? That's because we as people do good things and we think that that's what gains us eternal life. But we're not supposed to read the story and give out grades. It's like, okay, fine, I'll give the Good Samaritan an A+, but I at least get a B, maybe a C, and we all know who gets the D and the F. They're at the beginning of the story. And along with this, often you know, people make so many excuses, and Jesus and Luke didn't tell the story so that we could justify ourselves by the story. That's what the Good Samaritan wanted to do by asking his very first question. So if this is your response, you've really missed the point. 
And other people mistakenly assume that the main point of the story is to simply do the things that the Good Samaritan did. That we're simply supposed to exert more effort. Go out and try harder to be a good person today. Is that why you come to church? That's not the point of the story. It's not to hope one day that you're going to be considered in league with this good Samaritan. Sorry to tell you, you'll never make it. Jesus told the story for us to realize that not one of us can ever really be the good Samaritan. The good Samaritan you see in the story... Remember what we're talking about, the whole thing? It's all this debate about the law. The Good Samaritan is Jesus' way of describing the law's ideal. An ideal that no one can measure up to. He is the example of Leviticus 19.18 where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. But see, we don't and we won't ever measure up to the story, to the law to the perfection of God that's required. And so then the lesson comes out in verses 36 and 37. So which of these three, Jesus says to the lawyer, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the thieves? But remember that wasn't even the lawyer's question to begin with. But he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So the lawyer's asking the wrong question. I mean, who is my neighbor? The answer is obvious. It's everybody. The law is clear on this. And constantly questioning and trying to qualify what the law actually teaches and make it confusing for people, you know, that's not what you're supposed to do with the law. The right question, as Jesus shifts the whole discussion by his telling of this parable, is how can I be the loving neighbor that God has called me to be? That's a more dangerous question to ask. See, it's easy to sit around and define things, but it's much more threatening to actually put yourself in the story and you have to become something. So in first century Judaism, Jews didn't give or receive help from non-Jewish people, and actually this story would have worked and have been just as effective if we had a non-Jewish victim and we had a Jewish helper. But notice how the lawyer can't even answer Jesus' question directly. I mean, Jesus told you who the guy is, but a Samaritan. And when he asks which of the three, they all have names, titles, priest, Levite, Samaritan, he can't even spit out the word Samaritan. But it's probably an even better description of who is the answer to the question. It's the one who showed mercy. It's the one who showed mercy. The religious lawyer clearly doesn't love his neighbor as well as he thinks that he does. You wonder at this point, does he realize that? Maybe he does. Do we? And then Jesus tells him to go and do likewise. You see, the lawyer's real problem is that he really doesn't know what love is. He just assumes he does. The question is not about defining a neighbor, but showing love in action, love that comes within you because of God. And if one is asking, or if one is lacking such love, 
for one's neighbor, you're really also lacking a love for God and from God. There's a lot to reflect on in this story, and it makes one ask questions to the core of their very being. You see, living eternal life is illustrated by Jesus because through this ideal of the Good Samaritan, Jesus in the end is telling this lawyer that you cannot justify yourself before God and get eternal life by your deeds. No one's ever going to fulfill the law's demands. Only Jesus would, and for those who believed in him. At the same time, he's telling this lawyer that showing great mercy, like shown in the story, that's real evidence that you belong to the community of God and you actually have eternal life and God's life within you. And so Jesus leaves the lawyer and perhaps other people listening at this time, pondering his teaching without giving them any further instruction. It's like he answered at the very beginning. It's the same thing. You know, you might want to try doing evangelism like Jesus sometime. You don't have to always give people the answers. Sometimes it's better if they just have to think and go away thinking. So we have to come back to the enabling of God if we're going to love our neighbor as those who have eternal life. For those who have the life of God in them, living it out can actually be similar to what we read in this story. So we can be encouraged as we read it. The lawyer was shown up. And we too are reminded that Jesus' disciples, we who are different by God's grace, we love our neighbors not just by saying we do, but by actually doing things for people. And so we've learned that love for neighbor and God is best evaluated by deeds and not by one's words. I mean, that's how you know what a person really believes anyway. I mean, they can tell you, oh, they'll just talk forever about what they believe. But you look at their life, you look at their actions, that tells you exactly what they believe in truth and who they really are as people. And so those who possess eternal life and have this love of God in them and love for mankind with a supernatural love that they got from God himself because they know it can't come from within themselves, and it will be shown in ways that far surpass natural compassion There are so many lessons and applications that have been and continually been made from this passage. It's a passage that we return to often. It's it's why it is, in the history of the church, one of the most interpreted and preached passages ever is the Good Samaritan. And we should return to it often to reflect upon our own character and the character of love that we have. And we should return to it for ethical instruction and find uh, illustrations for our own lives and applications for more personal application in our lives. But as Christians, we know that the divine power for spiritual good, for law-keeping, if you will, comes from God's Spirit. It doesn't come from our flesh. And it's on the basis of this critical reality that the Holy Spirit lives within us, that's talked about repeatedly in the New Testament, that we can actually keep the law, if you will. So here are four references that you'll want to look up later on your own. So James 2.8 says this, James 2.8, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. James 2.8, and it's talking about, interestingly, that it fits with the story, uh, James is talking about partiality in the church. A lot to think about there. Uh, Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, but do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, 
Take care lest you be consumed by one another. Romans 13, 8 and following. Romans 13, 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall, commit, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So we might need to reconsider our interactions with people, especially those in great need. And, you know, you don't have to go searching far and wide to find somebody in need. It's usually the people that God just puts right in front of your face that are maybe perhaps already a part of your life. So do some reflection for yourself. You know, you can leave everybody else out of it. They don't need to be a part of your reflection. But reflect on your own life and ask God to open your eyes to your character. Ask God to open your eyes to your character of love. Ask God to open your eyes to move you to respond to the needs of others around you. We shouldn't leave the story, as so many people often do, with some sort of a general ominous feeling of guilt that we're not the good Samaritan. That's not the point of the parable for those who believe in Jesus. For those who believe in Jesus, Luke would have us have confidence that God's love is actually working through us. I mean, look who's in here. I mean, we're a room filled with disciples who want to follow Jesus better. That's who we are. And we want to grow in living out righteousness because we want to see the Holy Spirit at work. So let us learn to take advantage of the opportunities that we have in God's divine plan to be compassionate, and let us hope that in doing so, God's actually going to bring other people into the kingdom of God. You know, it can often work that way. In fact, I was hanging out with a, with a group of believers last week who are part of a brand new church plant, and their strategy, for their whole strategy pretty much, for evangelism is meeting people's needs who are needy people. That's it. And they're not talking about, you know, traveling 10 miles to find some needy people. Okay? I'm talking about the person in the apartment next door. They actually knock on the door. They actually build a relationship with them when they're walking dogs. Or they're playing with their kids downstairs. And uh, this is who they, who they meet. And they just start serving them doing things. It's surprising. Many people in this particular community are people that have moved here from other countries. They don't know anybody. They don't know how to get around. They don't know how to make life work. It's just like, well, I'll help you. And, and so this missional community, as they call themselves, is actually having great success. In fact, in that room that night was a man who just came to know Jesus and got baptized on their launch date, which was Easter two weeks ago. It's a wonderful method of evangelism is to simply show compassion for people and meet their needs. So let's seek to please Jesus by being a loving neighbor, a good Samaritan, understanding what all that really means. Jesus' disciples love their neighbors, not just in thought or in principle, remember, but by their actions. So at this point, we're going to actually celebrate our Lord's Supper being the first Sunday 
of the month as we normally do, so if those helping me serve would please come forward. <clears throat> 